Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, how great it would be to have that said of us. For someone to notice the firmness of our faith in Christ. We want to be that community. We want to be that church. So that your glory, your light can shine in this city. And that's why we come to this letter. We want to learn how to be firm in our faith. We come admitting our weakness. We come admitting our stubbornness. Admitting our ignorance. And we come asking for your help as we give ourselves to this word, would you give us understanding? And would you transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit? We ask for his work through this time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Valentine's Day on Friday. You didn't know that, if you weren't aware of that. And uh, if you weren't aware of that, you missed it. Um, Valentine's Day was on Friday, and I was thinking about romance. Uh, because of this, the dominance of, the, of that day in our culture. And, and I thought, you know, really there are, there are two types of romantic gestures. Uh, there's the start with me romantic gesture. Something that, that tries to communicate, hey, I'm interested in you, and I want to begin a relationship with you. That's one type of gesture. And then there's the second type, and it is the stay with me gesture. It is hey, I like this relationship, and I like you. Let's, let's keep it going, and let's continue it, and let's deepen it. The letter to the Colossians is the second type of gesture. Paul is romancing us to stay, to remain in the gospel. 
He wants us to continue in our faith in the message about Jesus. To continue to entrust our lives to that message as the most important voice in our lives. A voice that says who we are and what we should do. How we should spend our time and money. How we should relate to our families and friends. How we should relate in romantic relationships. How we should use our recreational time. All connected to an enduring faith in the gospel. That's what Paul wants for us. He wants to woo us to that type of life. And that faithfulness to the gospel was threatened in the Colossian community. It was under attack. And the faithfulness to that message is threatened in our community, in our hearts, in our lives. It is under attack. Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 2, I'm writing you all of this, this letter, all that I've said thus far, I've said it because I don't want you to be deluded by plausible arguments. And there are plausible arguments all around us. Voices that would draw us away from Jesus, that would draw us away from the message about Him. Last week, in my community group on Sunday night, I asked the question, what tempts us away from hope? What destabilizes your faith as a Christian? And several things came up. Fear came up. The fear of the unknown, of of how are all the unknowns in my life and in my future, how can I trust that those belong to Jesus and that He will work all of those things for my good? Challenges our faith, our hope, fear does. Rejection came up as something that draws us away. The potential that when those around us who are not believers in Jesus hear about our faith, they will find it offensive and ridiculous. And we will be rejected by people we love. Boredom came up. The sense that that something exciting is happening elsewhere. That there is a significance, there is a pleasure, there, there is an importance in some other way of life other than the life of faith. And these voices, among many other voices, call us away from Jesus. They call us away from a life of faith in Him. And Paul wants to convince us to stay, to remain. So, why should we stay? Why should we remain when there are all of these compelling voices around us? Why should we remain and persist in our faith in the message about Jesus? Well, I want us to listen to Paul's persuasive voice in this text. As he attempts to convince us to stay, we'll see that he persuades us in this text with suffering and with mystery. He wants to romance us 
with suffering and mystery. So first of all, suffering. Paul says in verse 24 of chapter 1, I rejoice in my suffering. And that's crazy, right? That is crazy. Paul is sitting in a prison cell. He has endured multiple beatings and many other types of physical and social mistreatment. And he says, I'm happy about that. I rejoice in that pain. That sounds insane, right? Well, it begins to make sense if we pay attention to how Paul talks about his suffering, and in particular how he describes his suffering in verse 29 of chapter 1. He says, I toil, which is just good old-fashioned hard work. And then he says, I struggle. These are ways that he talks about his pain and his suffering. I toil and I struggle. And he repeats that word struggle in verse 1 of chapter 2. And it is a word that was used in this context to talk about athletic endeavor. So Winter Olympics are happening now. And the Winter Olympics, of course, are famous for all of these strange events, right, that we would never watch any other time of the year. And one of those events is the biathlon, which is people on skis with guns. I don't know, but it's an event of the Winter Olympics, and I watched a few minutes of it this past week. And I noticed as these guys, they chugged along on their skis, and then they had to stop and try to shoot at targets. And if you, if you watch them and their bodies when they do that, you can see their effort. Because when they lay down, you can see them, and they're kind of shaking, you know, and they put on, you know. And that's the whole point of the sport is, can you do this effort and shoot the gun at the same time? Okay? That's struggle. That's this word, struggle. It is the labored breathing of an athlete. And that is how Paul sees his pain, his beatings, his imprisonment. It is the labored breathing of an athlete. Why? Why such intense effort? Well, verse 29, he says, For this I toil, for this I struggle. For what? Well, back up to verse 28. He says, I proclaim and I teach, and that's why Paul was in prison, because he talked about a message that was seen as subversive and dangerous. And why does he proclaim and teach? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's why Paul is struggling. That's why he is in prison. That's why he is in pain. And understand that the Colossians were included in that everyone, and you are included in that everyone. Paul suffered so that you could know Jesus and be transformed by Him. His effort was focused on that. He was not a masochist who enjoyed pain. He entered into that pain as an athlete enters into the pain to win a prize. And the prize is you being 
mature, the word means complete in Jesus. Now this could be heard as very self-centered propaganda. As Paul saying, hey, look how great I am. Look how much I've suffered. Aren't you impressed? But that's not what this is. Because notice that Paul talks about himself in order to talk about Jesus. And he connects, and he makes sure that we understand the connection between his pain and Jesus' pain. His suffering and the suffering of Jesus. There's another crazy statement in verse 24 of chapter 1. He says, my sufferings, my pain, fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now wait a second. Isn't Colossians all about the sufficiency of Jesus, right? All that he has done for us, and that's all that we need. How can Paul say that he fills up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ in his pain? Well, the good rule for Bible reading is that whenever you come across something confusing, keep reading. Because often your confusion will be clarified. Not always, but often, and I think that's the case here. If we keep reading, we'll begin to understand what Paul means. Because think about Paul's role in this text. How does he talk about himself? He's a communicator, right? He's making the Word of God known. He is teaching, he's proclaiming, he's admonishing all acts of communication. Paul is a communicator. What is Jesus' role? Here and even back up to the previous two weeks in this letter. Jesus is the reconciler, right? Remember, because of our sin, we are alienated from God. We are outside of his life. And Jesus walks out into the cold and dies to bring us in to the warmth of God's life and acceptance. Jesus' role is the reconciler. Paul's role is communicator. Now connect the suffering of those two roles. Jesus suffers to reconcile. Paul suffers in order to communicate reconciliation. So Paul is not saying, I I am suffering to redeem you. He is saying, I am suffering to tell you about the redemption that is yours in Jesus Christ and in His cross. He's saying, look at my scars, and in my scars you will see what Jesus has done for you. You will see how great the desire of Jesus is that you would be redeemed, that you would be forgiven, that you would be healed, that you would be reconciled. He says, look at my scars and see how great the love of Christ is for His church. How great the love of Christ is for you. Back to Valentine's Day. Uh, It's a day with a lot of talk, right? Climb the highest mountain, swim the deepest ocean for you. And and we understand that that talk is often empty talk, right? 
Uh, I'd fight fire-breathing dragons for you, but don't ask me to change that nice, nasty, poofy diaper, right? (laughs) That's me. Uh, (laughs) There's a little self-confession there, right? (laughs) Paul's romance of us is not empty talk. Jesus' love for us is not platitudes. It is the pain of the cross. It is the suffering that He endured because of our sin, our alienation, in order to reconcile us to God and bring us into God's life. That is Jesus' love for us. And Paul participates in that suffering in order to communicate that message, in order to communicate the message of the cross. See, church, how deeply Christ loves you. How deep His desire is to bring you to life instead of death. And so when you feel feel the pull, when you feel those voices, those plausible arguments, those compelling voices around you, voices of of doubt, of rejection, uh, voices of boredom and fear that would draw you away from Jesus, when you hear those voices, hear instead Paul's scars. as he points us to Jesus' scars, that say to us, here's how deep my love is for you. This is why you should stay. This is why you should remain in the faith. Look at Christ's love for you. That's why Paul suffered. And that's why he talks about his suffering, in order to convince us to stay. But he doesn't only talk about his sufferings. Remember, his sufferings are for the purpose of communicating a message. And so he not only talks about his sufferings, he talks about a message. And he calls that message a mystery. And he convinces us not only with his pain, but with mystery. And understand that when Paul talks about mystery in this text, it is not something that remains unknown. It's not like, hey, that's a mystery, I don't understand it. It's it's mystery in the way that uh, we label certain types of books. We say that's a mystery story, or that's a mystery novel. And what's the typical structure of a mystery novel? Something goes wrong, there's a crime... And the story is about discovering who committed the crime and bringing them to justice, right? That's Paul's mystery. It's a story like that, only it's not a who done it, it's a how done it. Something has gone wrong, and there's no mystery about who's done that. It's us in our sin. The mystery that Paul talks about here is how that wrong is made right. And the mystery is around the issue of glory. Another important word in this text. 
the mystery about glory. Understand that glory is visible excellence. Glory is visible, sometimes audible excellence. So, for example, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt, he gives them a visible experience of his presence, right? You remember the shining cloud, the burning pillar? And that is called the glory cloud. That is called God's glory. Why? Because his people can see in it his power. They can see his excellence, his goodness. It is a display of how great he is. That's glory. And we were made for it. We were made for glory in two ways. We were made to live with God's glory. We were made to live with His presence. The burning holiness of God. We were made to live with that. And we were made to live for it as well. We were made to live for God's glory. We were made to reflect it. We were made to be the visible, audible experience of the goodness and the greatness of God. That's why we were made. But we lost it. We lost that purpose. We lost that design. And sin took us away from glory. It separated us from the presence of God and the life that the presence of God should produce in us. And if you pay attention to the Old Testament and what God says and what He does, He's constantly saying to His people, the glory will come back. I will restore you. The glory will come back. And it will come back not only to the people of Israel, but as the prophet Isaiah says, the glory of God will fill and cover the entire earth. You will be restored to that. But the question, the constant question is always how? And that's the mystery Paul talks about. How? If humanity continues in its rebellion, if God's people continue in their rebellion, how? How can we be restored to glory? It's a mystery, but it's a mystery that's been solved. It's a question that has been answered. Verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is the answer to the question, how can we be restored to God's purpose for us? The purpose of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is why Jesus came. That is what Jesus is doing now. And that is what He will finish in the future. Is He is restoring us. He's solving the mystery. He's restoring us to what Sin has taken from us. And so Paul says, remain with Him. Look at what He is doing. He is restoring you to glory. And so stay with Him. Continue in your faith. Come back again and again to that message. The one who is the hope of glory. And here's the deal. Here's the key. There is only one answer to the question, how? 
There is only one solution to the mystery. And so Paul is saying, that's Jesus. So go to Him, because in Him are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. In Him is the wealth of glory that you long for, that you were made for, that you most deeply need. And the reason we struggle with that The reason that we struggle to remain in the faith, the reason that these other voices are more compelling to us than the voice of the gospel, is that we attempt to solve the mystery with someone other than Jesus. We attempt to solve the mystery with something in addition to Jesus. That if I get this, or I have this, then I will be able to restore myself to the glory for which I made. So for example, back to Valentine's Day one more time, sorry. I think that day and the way that our culture celebrates it, it is just one more piece of evidence for me that the way that we, many of us, attempt to solve the mystery is with romance. That in our culture, Romantic relationships have become our hope of glory. It's what Ernest Becker calls apocalyptic romance. And let me read a quote from you, and this comes from Tim and Kathy's Keller, very good book on marriage. And here's what he says, here's how he diagnoses our culture of romance. He says, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs have now become focused on one individual. One person. The hope of glory. That's what we're looking for. And the tragedy is is that it is both a false hope and a false glory. And when we pursue it, one of two things happen. Either we go from one person to another to another, always looking for that apocalyptic romance that we can never find. And disappointed and frustrated because we are unable to find that supposed one person who will make us complete, who will make us whole. Or we find a person... And we think we've got it. But so quickly what was apocalyptic becomes just annoying. And we live in disappointment because what we wanted that person to be for us, they can't be. Because they're not Jesus. They're not the answer to the question. They can't solve the mystery for us. And this is a message both for the unmarried and the married. For the unmarried, don't buy the lie that there is one person who can complete you. That there is one romantic relationship that can make you whole. It will lead you to disappointment and frustration. There is only one hope of glory. 
and that is Jesus. It is not wrong to want to be married. That's a good desire. But desire it in a way that understands that marriage is not the Messiah. Family is not the Messiah. It will not complete you. It will not make you whole. It is a good gift to receive from God with gratitude. But you cannot lay your hopes on that. For the married, don't put those hopes on your spouse. So many of the struggles in our marriage come from wanting that other person to be apocalyptic for us, to make us whole, to make us complete, to restore us to the glory that we long for, the glory that we were made for. But that person cannot do that for you. Go instead to Jesus. The answer to the question, the one who solves the mystery of glory. And so we need to come, married or not, again and again and again to the gospel. Because we find there all the riches that we need. We find there the one who will, can, who does restore us to that for which we were made. Over the Thanksgiving holiday, we went down to visit my wife's parents in Bradenton. And Grammy and Papa very graciously watched our kids one night while we were down there. And we got to go out for a nice meal. And we went on Yelp and find, found the nicest seafood restaurant in the area, the one everyone recommended. And we went, and it was great. It was delicious. But there was one problem with this restaurant. It was way too small. It was a tiny space, and they had piled tables practically on top of each other. And the problem with that is it just fed my, my plate envy. You know plate envy? When you go to a restaurant, you order something, and then you see somebody else's plate, and you're like, oh, I should have ordered that. That looks better than what I have. That's what we're dealing with this morning. We're dealing with plate envy. We look around us, and we see things that we think are better out there. I should, I should have ordered that. And Paul, instead in this text, he's like a great waiter who says, no, 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 let me tell you about your meal. Let me tell you about the ingredients on your plate, the process that brought this to you, the suffering of Jesus to bring you life, the mystery of glory that you belong to if you are in faith in Jesus. Your plate is better. Your plate is better. So we have to ask ourselves in response to what he says. Will we hear it? Will we be persuaded? Will we by faith eat and be satisfied in the feast of grace that is ours in Jesus Christ? Let's pray.